0: Ha ha! Whoever you are, wherever you are, and whenever it is, you're catching some waves Coming to you from the banks of the enduring and untamed St. Vrain River, and almost always sunny Longmont, Colorado, I'm Ben Kolb, and to my right is the co-host who regularly leads horses to water and makes them drink, Becky Peters. Becky, how's it going?
1: It's so good, Ben. I can't wait for this episode where we talk about finding your companion plant. We interview the insanely gifted blogger, educator, author, consultant, and TED Talker extraordinaire, Dr. Katie Martin. We deconstruct meaningful learning experiences, and we talk about how to bring project-based learning to your students. I cannot believe we're already seven episodes in, and I'm learning so much from our guests. Last episode, we chatted with Dan Ryder about critical creativity, rigorous whimsy, and talking with students about the intentions behind their creative decisions. And he gives a ton of practical tips, so be sure to check that out if you haven't listened to that one yet. I definitely feel more informed, inspired, and connected after each incredible guest, and I know the same will be true after this one.
0: I concur. And spring has sprung in northern Colorado. Somewhere, Justin Timberlake is loving life because all the memes with his face and the words, it's going to be May, are floating around. Is that one of his
1: songs or something? It is, yeah, oh, okay. something
0: like that. And I, my allergies are flaring up, so I think it's one of... The, a great time to share one of my favorite gardening analogies.
1: Huh. Do you have a, a, a plethora of gardening analogies in that tote bag of yours?
0: Well, perhaps I do, Becky. Who's to say? Who's to say? <laughs> uh, we know brainwaves is all about teaching on the shoulders of giants and learning from other people. And this analogy is definitely an example Uh, of that because this comes from one of my favorite podcasters and bloggers, Jennifer Gonzalez.
1: Oh, she's amazing. She's definitely a giant. She sets the bar impossibly high with her podcast, The Cult of Pedagogy. She's been doing it for six years and is almost at episode 100 already. If I were to recommend another education podcast, it would definitely be hers. We'll link to that in our show notes. Oh, and you can access our show notes on your iPhone or iPad just by swiping up when you're listening to this podcast. And then all the links are clickable. You can also go to our website at Rainwood to see show notes there. I've had a lot of listeners tell me that they like to take notes while they listen to things like this, but we've done that for you already. So check it out on our blog.
0: Definitely. But back to my gardening story, if you oh, don't yeah, mind. Yeah, sorry. Okay. So I have what is probably the opposite of a green thumb. I always know it's time for school to start up again in the fall because out my front window, my lawn has turned a brown, crunchy, scorched, uh, just nastiness out front, And somehow my backyard is thriving with some of the most lush green weeds you've ever seen. (laughs) So, you know, anytime I have a story that pertains to botany, that it has to be a pretty powerful story. So again, thank you to Jen Gonzalez for this incredible analogy, because I know nothing about gardening, but skilled gardeners do this technique called companion planting. Have you ever heard of it, Becky?
1: No, I haven't, but I'm excited to hear
0: So companion planting is basically where you can plant a certain plant next to other plants and help them thrive. So if you're trying to grow some spinach in your backyard and rabbits and bugs keep eating your spinach leaves, if you plant radishes next to the spinach, they will prefer the radish leaf, which doesn't hurt the radish plant because radishes grow underground. So that's an example of a companion plant. Um, If you're growing rose bushes, The best companion plant is garlic because garlic keeps funguses and other predators away from it. But the most popular and probably the most famous companion plant is the marigold. So when you plant a marigold next to most other things in the garden, chances are they grow faster, stronger, and healthier. Hmm. Now, conversely, in the plant kingdom, something I never thought I would say, (laughs) we have these things called alliopens. Plants, plants that poison, kill, and halt the growth of other plants. And one of the more notorious alleopathic plants is the walnut tree. So that was out of our heads into our gardens. So let's get on to the interview. No, no, I don't I still don't get it.
1: Okay, so <laughs>
0: let's deconstruct this a little bit. You plant yourself by a marigold, you grow healthy, strong, happy. You plant yourself next to a walnut tree, you wither and die. Uh, what can we make of this, Becky?
1: well i've I've actually heard it said that you are essentially the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. and i I really think about that a lot, and it reminds me of this analogy you're talking about. So if that's true, how does that make you feel? Who are you associating with in your school? Are you planting yourself by the marigold teachers? Those are the ones that encourage you who presume the best of other teachers and students in the building, the ones that make you excited to tackle a new challenge, the ones who say like, oh my gosh, it's Friday already, excitedly, instead of the ones that say, oh my God, is it Friday yet? Uh, Or are you planted by the walnut people around you, the ones who maybe gossip or complain or doubt make it always about themselves, deflect blame to other people. The ones who say sometimes they expect us to do what? Now, I know some of our relationships in schools are not by our choice. Our classroom's geographic location may determine who we're planted by. Uh, Maybe it's by your grade level team or your subject area team. But Really, your job satisfaction, your mental and physical health, and again, by extension, your student success can depend a lot on who you're surrounded by. So, finding your marigolds is actually a lot more important than you think.
0: I 100% agree, Becky. And I think the analogy of a walnut tree as a, a negative person is a really accurate one because walnut trees are gigantic and they seem hard to avoid and you can't chop them down. But I know it's worth it to avoid them. I know it's worth it to surround yourself with marigolds. And I hope this podcast brings marigolds to your earbuds, and I 100% know that this episode will because we get to learn from Dr. Katie Martin.
1: Yeah, Katie Martin is the Director of District Leadership for the Buck Institute of Education, which has amazing tools and resources for all things project-based learning, which from now on out you'll hear us refer to as PBL. Uh, in in her role here, she supports districts and educational leadership across the country to support high-quality PBL for all of her students, all of their students. Uh, her first book, Learner-Centered Innovation, was just a released a few months back and is a super powerful read. One of the things that I adore most about this guest is her ability to combine research and practice to create meaningful insights for educators.
0: Yeah, and in this episode, we deconstruct meaningful learning experiences and figure out what we can learn about teaching from them. We talk about ways you can bring project-based learning to your classroom, and we discuss some people outside of education that we all can learn from. So here she is, Dr. Katie Martin. A lot of people go into teaching because they loved school. Is that the case for you?
2: That is not the case. I often say, you know, a lot of people went into teaching because they love to line up their stuffed animals and practice on the chalkboard, you know, convene these these classes. And that was certainly not my story. I grew up, my mom's a teacher, and I grew up in her classroom, but never really loved being a student in the classroom. And remember thinking kind of in third grade, how much longer do I have to do this? Which is a long time to be looking down the pike at graduation. So I, I just really... I survived school. I was an AB student. I learned how to play the game quite well, but I never really felt empowered or inspired in my classes. And so I didn't really think about teaching. I didn't think that was something I wanted to go into until I got into college and started really enjoying classes and having more choice in what I was doing. And I ended up in an education class and realized that. I didn't have to recreate the experiences I had as a student that I could do something different and I could actually create better experiences and more opportunities for voice and choice um, as a teacher. So I went through um, my teacher education program and it was an amazing program that taught me how to teach in more project-based learning ways and create more authentic opportunities for kids. And I ended up loving it and can't imagine doing anything else.
1: That's awesome. And I think probably a few of our listeners got into education, too, because they wanted to see school done differently. So definitely speaking to them. So what prompted you to write this book, your book, Learner-Centered Innovation? Uh, I just finished it. It's amazing. But it just became available in December 2017. So what prompted you to write it, Katie? And how did you go about writing it? I'm curious about that, too.
2: Great question. I I started blogging actually and a friend of mine, George Coros, really pushed me to blog and share kind of what I was learning as I was working with different educators and different school districts. So I started writing and more and more I started kind of finding my voice and realizing that people were connecting with things that I was saying and it was making an impact in professional development and really thinking differently about what we wanted to see in the classroom. So I started putting something together in terms of an introduction and George again had asked me to write the book and he published it. So it was, it took about a year and I drafted it and it was really hard and fun and exciting all together to really put your ideas out there. And again, blogging helped me really find out what resonated and helped me hone my own ideas
1: Well, I have a follow up to that thing because I know a lot of our teachers are looking to get on social media or start blogging or, you know, having kind of like that digital professional learning network. So, what has that done for you as an educator? Has it helped? I mean, if you, I mean, you kind of mentioned you were maybe hesitant at first to start blogging. Uh, George Kuros had to talk you into it kind of. So, what has it done for you? How would you encourage other teachers to use that platform?
2: It has changed my world completely to find people out in the world who are doing things differently and and who can push me. It took me out of, you know, a school or my my workplace where there's 20 people you talk to on a regular basis and opened up my view of what's happening in the world and really pushed my thinking a ton. When I started blogging, I thought who cares what I have to say, right? I'm I'm just a teacher. I am just whatever and no one really cares what I have to say. And I found out that a lot of people care. And a lot of people really want to share what they're doing as well and have that community to be challenged and to be, but also be validated. And so just connecting with people who share your passion, who have great insights and who can value your work is, is really just kind of an amazing place to be.
0: That's that's fantastic. So I'm a huge fan of the Buck Institute. For those of you who don't know, we're definitely going to link to it, but they are kind of the go-to place for project-based learning. And I think a, a lot of the teachers I work with believe in project-based learning and the reasons behind it and have a hard time tangibly figuring out what that might look like. So I was wondering if you could tell us a few stories about some of the awesome project-based learning that you have seen uh, since you've worked in the Buck Institute, or maybe even going back to when you were a teacher?
2: Yeah. So one of the um, examples that I like to share is one of my former colleagues, Kim Cockwell. She just is one of the most amazing teachers I've ever seen. And when I walked into her classroom, it was just something that you just feel like there's amazing learning happening. And it's the place I always wanted to be as a student. And she was teaching fourth grade and had, you know, you walk in, you can't find her anywhere. It's a flexible classroom, bright, open. And she had four groups of students, I think, working on, on different projects. So they were partnering with people in the community. It was like the water company. It was a humane society, a preschool. And so these students were partnering with different organizations. They had to find out a problem that needed to be solved. They had to design a solution and come back. They had to write a proposal. They had a budget. They had to create a website. They had to create multimedia presentations. And there was, you know, they were all linked to standards and it was all very connected to what the core content was. But the way that she went about it really honored students' voice and choice and allowed them to connect and do things that were meaningful beyond the classroom. I think the most engaging lesson, no matter where it is that I've seen, are when people get to solve their own problems. Hmm. So this is in professional development. It's in the classroom. It's anywhere. When people have opportunities to figure out a challenge or ask a question and have the time and space and support to research, to connect, to make sense of it, and to actually do something with what they're learning, that is always the most engaging and empowering for learners. And to me, that's the core. And you know, our focus at the Buck Institute is really about authentic learning. So to tie that in a little bit, we have what we call gold standard essential design elements. And at the core, it's about key knowledge and understanding, which all of us have standards and we have to address and we're held accountable to. And we say that that's the way, that's the core, but doesn't tell you how to teach it. So we focus on project-based learning as starting with an essential question, a challenging question or problem, and that has sustained inquiry. So something that you're questioning, working on over time, it's not just a quick one-hour lesson or a worksheet, it's something that extends over a period of time for individuals to learn and question. It's authentic. There's real student voice and choice, uh, opportunities to reflect. Something we forget all the time, I feel like, in education is critique and revision. So opportunities to learn what you're doing well and, and areas for growth and to continually revise. And then ultimately, it ends in a public product. A lot of times we turn things in and they just go to the teacher and then end up going to the trash can. So project-based learning, in our view, really is about presenting beyond the classroom, extending your learning, doing something that makes an impact, and having a larger audience to um, share
1: and learn with. That's awesome. We talk about authentic audience. All the time, I feel like it, that word comes out of my mouth all the time because it can't just be for your classroom or for your teacher. It just has so much more power if it goes beyond that. And I'm curious, so you, you talk a lot in your book about learner-centered experiences. I mean, that's, it's called learner-centered innovation, but you outline 10 characteristics then of learner-centered experiences. So how do those differ or are they complementary to the gold standard essential design elements that you just discussed? And can you highlight a couple of those maybe too?
2: Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, No, I think that they align very much so. Um, The way I came up with those is a lot of times when I work with educators, I always ask them to focus on the learner experience. And that often starts with us and what we experience. And we often create what we experience. So I ask people to go back and think about a really powerful time when they remembered learning something in or out of school and then to share that. through doing this multiple times, the common elements that came out were these 10 characteristics. So that there was, you know, there was a goal, there was some productive struggle, there was opportunities to to get feedback, there are mentors, there's opportunities again for critique and revision, and there's choice, all of these things are very similar to what we outline in the gold standard at Buck. But it's really about understanding the learner, what they're doing, and giving them ownership of the learning rather than the traditional compliance-based model. I tell you, you do something and then we move on. When people, when people highlight things that they have learned and those powerful experiences, they, they really are about opportunities for the, the individual and the learner to be the one who is, who is owning the learning and having that agency.
0: That's, that's fantastic. So I love the quote that you just mentioned, that teachers create what we experience. And so the question I have is a two-part question. Number one, have you seen schools where professional development for teachers has been this format that you just talked about, so that the way teachers learn, they just then replicate with their students? And, the, and I'd love to hear about a school that's doing that well. And then the second question would be, for teachers in a school where that is not the case, uh, what would your recommendation be to them?
2: Great question. So yes, I have seen schools and I'm fortunate to get to work with schools who are doing this, but it, it still is is a challenge. We only have so much time. And so we have to really prioritize what we do. One of my favorite things to do with teachers for professional development is to actually just put them in the seat of a learner, ask teachers to be a learner themselves. And actually tomorrow I'll be at a conference doing a project slice. So it's actually taking teachers through a project as the learner themselves so they can experience what it feels like. Often, you know, we want to make things easy and perfect in the classroom and we don't want anything to any struggle. But when we're learning. It's messy and it's hard and we have to really honor that and understand what we're asking our students to do. So another thing is a 25-hour learning challenge I've done with a lot of my teachers in in college courses or professional development and ask them to learn something new. It could be some people have done golfing, bake a cake, running. It could be any of those things, but to then really reflect on the process of learning the struggles they have, who they reach out to for mentors, what the what the process is, how they go about learning things step-by-step, step, and then sharing that on social media, so being open and public about the learning. And through that, I've had teachers say to me time and time again how that's changed their thinking about the audience, going back to authentic audience, for students and why it's important. And the second thing I think for that is really important for us as educators to model that being learners for students. We think that that we've gone through school and, you know, we, we have our credential and now we're supposed to know everything and it's impossible for teachers in the classroom to know everything. It's impossible for principals to know everything. So really just being open and transparent about that learning process can be really
1: powerful. That's awesome, I yeah, that somebody I heard once somebody say, like kids feel like adults have themselves together because they know how to tie their shoes, but really it's nobody's perfect. you know they I mean, we don't all have all the answers. I think that's a really important thing to remember
0: twenty five hour learning challenge sounds super cool, and I bet most teachers don't choose to do their learning sitting in rows and being lectured to for you know twenty five hours. so that's a great reflection piece for sure.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So your chapter four in your book, Katie, is called What Does Your Ideal Classroom Look Like? So I'm going to turn that question to you, but I also want you to talk a little bit too about what the disconnect is between what people say their answer to that question is and then what we actually do in education. And you talk a little bit about the knowing-doing gap. I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit.
2: When I kind of frame that, what does your ideal classroom look like, is, is very much about this gap. So the way I write about it in the book is I have talked to superintendents and say, what is your ideal classroom look like? And they think, and they say, I know it when I see it. And so my my reflection back to them is, if you can't articulate it without buzzwords or programs or even anything concrete, how can we expect principals and or teachers to recreate that and to um, be able to, to create that vision in their classroom if there's not a common expectation from, from the central office. And when I say that, I don't mean tell me exactly what to do and what page to be on. But if there's a common understanding that we believe in collaboration, we've talked a lot about authentic learning, or if we believe that there should be time for reflection and inquiry, then That has to be something that we provide resources for, that we make sure to our curriculum and the way we're teaching aligns to that. You know, so this disconnect that I see often is people will say, our vision is all about student-centered learning. It's all about um, critical thinking. It's all about 21st century skills. And then there's curriculum and expectations and benchmark tests and common assessments that expect people to be standardized and do the same thing every day. And so those two things are not in alignment. And if we say that we value individuals, yet we treat everybody and expect them to go through this standardized process, those two things don't align very well. And so you can do one or the other, but you can't do both of those very well. So it's important, and I think this coherence piece, to really understand what it is we want for kids, what it is we want for the learners in our schools, and then make sure that we have systems and conditions that really support that type of learning.
1: And, and you talk a little bit too about people's responses to change and how there's a difference between like our, our primal response to change and our evolutionary response to change, and how important it is that in education we have an you know adaptability to evolve with uh, new things. Can you give an example of that or why that's super important to you?
2: Yeah. You know, the, I'm just... Had was cleaning out my drawers. So here's an example. I was just cleaning out my drawers in my office and I found old Kodak film. And I was, <laughs> I know, right? Like, I was trying to explain to my seven and eight year old what it was. And they were so confused and bored out of their minds after 30 seconds of me trying to explain it because it's a, such a foreign concept to them. They take my phone and they take 100 pictures and they add filters and whatever they want to it. And meanwhile, I'm telling them I used to take a picture, couldn't see it, send it off for a week and then come back and maybe it was an okay picture. So the reason I say that is the world has evolved. I mean, that's only in the last 10 to 15 years, 10 years that that has changed so dramatically. And we are still doing things and holding on to things in our classrooms and in our schools that no longer serve the purpose of our students in them and no longer prepare them for the world that they're moving into. And so I think that we really need as educators to evolve and continually focus on what's happening with our kids and what's happening with the world that we need to be better supporting them to do rather than teaching them the way we taught because it worked for us, because the world is different. And I think a prime example of that is social media. I see so many schools that are still banning YouTube and um, and social media or making kids check in their phones, you know, when they go to class. Yet if you asked a teacher to put their phone, you know, at the door and not access their phone or their technology all day long, most of them would not be okay with that. Yeah. So I think we have to start preparing kids. they, once they lock out the door, they have access to devices and information, and a lot of them have it in school. And if we're not teaching them to access that those resources and connect with people responsibly, I think we're doing them a huge disservice. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: not, yeah, not helping students develop those skills we know they need definitely is a huge disservice. My question would be, what do you think we should be calling those skills? Um, you know, Tony Wagner calls them survival skills. We have other people calling them 21st century skills, but it's the year 2018. So I'm just curious, what have you heard those things called and what should we be calling them as educators?
2: Yeah, I mean, they're skills, right? They are. I'm looking right now at a, at a um, slide that is the World Economic Forum Future of Jobs Report and the 2020 skills that are needed and they just call them skills. They don't label them by the centuries.
0: Skills with a S or a Z
2: deals with an S. Okay.
0: Okay. Very different. Make sure you guys all take note of that.
2: (laughs) Like complex problem solving, critical thinking, creativity. And this fourth one is people management, coordinating with others. And I just, those things are so important. And I mean, I think you'll find over and over again, like you said, the world-class jobs that if you can't coordinate and connect and work with others, it doesn't matter how smart you are or how much you know. And so those are the things that, yes, knowledge and content is absolutely important, but we also have to focus on how we how we go about finding that information and how we go about working with others to make sense of it and do something with the information.
0: What three skills do you use most often? You are an ed leader, an author, just an all-around rock star. What are the three things you do most often to succeed in your job?
2: Wow, that's a really good question. I think I say communication, but I mean, I am always connecting with people and trying to understand their point of view. So empathizing, empathy is a huge skill that I think um, I've needed to hone and really focus on. Problem solving, I think is is huge. Always just trying to figure out, not even just solving problems, trying to understand what problems exist. Sometimes it's not quite clear what the problem is. So trying to trying to find those problems and understand the best way to solve those, and I guess the other piece is just relationship building, just continually um, connecting with others and build and working to build relationships.
0: Those are great. I I noticed you did not say worksheets or memorizing facts. Would you like to amend your statement?
2: <laughs> I, I would not like to amend my statement. I. <laughs> not spend time doing those at all. I try oh. to avoid them at all costs. All
0: right, fair <laughs> enough.
1: That's awesome. So your your tagline, which I just love. I totally want to steal it. On your blog is inspired by research informed by practice. And I love that because it just it really shows me the the fine balance that we need to strike when we're examining both the art and the science of teaching. So where do you go to get like to stay up to date on the latest research in education and like how do you find the time to read all those things? Like, do you have a life hack for this? Do you know what I mean?
2: Gosh, I wish I did. Maybe my <laughs> life hack is I I listen to a lot of audiobooks. So if I'm traveling or driving, I listen to, to books a lot. And I actually have, in my later years, started reading less education books. I read a lot of education blogs and things like that, but I've also started reading a lot from just leading business and sociology and psychology, just to kind of better understand and give me a broader perspective on the world. That's Um, awesome. And that that has opened up my eyes a lot because we tend to be pretty um, narrow sometimes in education. And so helping me see what things connect and where my blind spots are has been huge for me.
1: Huh. Any, any recommendations on books from those other disciplines that you would highly recommend to educators?
2: Yeah. One of my favorites um, is Creativity, Inc. by Ed Catmull. He's the um, CEO of Pixar. It is awesome. The Power of Moments, I believe. Chip and Dan Heath just came out with that this year. And Originals is always, is is just a great one. That's, I, I go back to that one.
1: The Adam Grant and Sheryl Sandberg, that one? Um, or exactly. just the Adam Grant, I take it just back. Adam Grant, yeah. Yeah.
0: Thank you for adding to my reading wish list. I definitely want to check those out. One of the cool side effects of rain waves that, makes it sound like a disease. Uh, one of the cool things with this podcast is being able to pick up on patterns from the educational giants we've had the privilege of speaking with, and both Dave Burgess and Dan Ryder, our, our previous two guests, talk about how important outside books are to their practice and, and their learning, so it's cool to hear that from you as well. Now, one of the people you quote in Learner Center Innovation is indeed outside of education in Jeff Bezos. Can you tell us how uh, he's informed your practice and what he could teach teachers?
2: The the section that I believe you're referring to with Jeff Bezos is he he talks about in his annual letter to stakeholders about um, day one, always staying fresh and being in this startup mentality. And one of the things that he says helps do that is really staying focused on the customers. Instead of getting caught up in the workers and what they want and and what they think is best at Amazon, he's really focused on always making sure he's in tune with what the customers want and what they need. And how I feel like this translates to us in schools is continually being focused on learners. We can get so caught up in the new procedures and this program and the iPads and the technology sometimes we forget to ask kids how they're doing. We forget to ask kids what they're interested in, what they want to learn about, um, what resonated. And um, I saw somewhere recently, someone noted that for as much assessment as we do, as much time as we find out, trying to get data to learn about what kids know and how they're doing, we so infrequently ask. And so I think there's this, this notion that to be learner focused and constantly focused on what, what's working and what's not uh, will serve us well in schools to make sure that everything we're, we're all working so hard for is actually meeting the goals that we set out to meet.
1: That's awesome. The other the other thing you talked about uh, with him particularly is like the balance between waiting for consensus and also driving innovation. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really, um, I mean, it's, it's a struggle and it's one thing to say, you know, just go ahead and you can, you know, if you have an idea, push forward. And it's not that easy. Um, relationships are always going to be at the core. And if you can't connect with people and rally them to move forward, it's going to be hard to accomplish anything. Hmm. But on the flip side, we can't focus on one or two or five people who don't want to move. We have to look at the larger picture. And so I think. In some cases, there's a tendency to focus on some of the naysayers or people who are frustrated and not really understanding why they need to change, to focus on that instead of really focusing on creating the model, working to move forward and show people. In my experience, people, especially in schools, are not resistant to doing what's right for kids. They're resistant to change for change's sake or because they don't understand. Why they're implementing programs, a lot of times when we talked, you know, you said you're working with iPads and technology. I worked with a lot of teachers who did not just want to have all their kids have a device, because they didn't know what the purpose was. Once they found out how they could use the technology more effectively, they were ready to move. But until that message was made clear and the why was clear, people were were frustrated. So back to the question of consensus versus innovation, I think part of the way to build consensus is to create models and to help people understand why we're doing things, but not always trying just to convince everybody. We, we waste a lot of time trying to convince people it's right instead of showing them how how to make it work.
1: Hmm. Um, I kind of want to go back and ask you a little bit, pick your brain a little bit about how you've helped, um, since you coach schools and teachers and all of this, how have you helped people and staffs and educators kind of wrap their heads around strategic abandonment of initiatives that they know aren't working anymore? Like the research is pretty clear on, you know, weekly spelling tests that don't have any context, but, you know, a lot of people hold those really close to their heart and they think it's, you know, a practice that they could never get rid of. Like how with, you know, adding more things on, how do we take things away in a strategic way?
2: Yeah. I love that strategic abandonment. I, um, there needs to be a lot more of that. I think it's, it's a conversation and it's, you're right. It's not easy. So homework is one of those I've attempted to tackle and I start to have conversations with as many people as I can about it. And what I often find is we have these kind of warped notions about why we're doing these things So I'm a parent, I'm an educator, and I, and I, you know, in the community, I'll often hear my fellow moms complain about homework and they're so frustrated by it. And, but then they spend all night doing homework. They're helping their kids with it and they haven't talked to the teachers about it. But then when I talk to the teachers, they say the parents want us to do homework. Huh? And so I said, have you talked to the parents? So I feel like there's a really, there's a huge disconnect, even like principals will say, I want my teachers to stop giving homework. And the teachers say, we can't stop giving homework because the school expects us to do it. Mm -hmm. So there, there's the reason I bring this up is I think there's these long held beliefs that someone else wants us to do something. And so we assume that we're supposed to, to look good in our job or to, or like as parents, we're supposed to do homework because it makes us look good and makes us look our students like our students. Kids are responsible. Mm-hmm. And so I think to, to strategically abandon stuff, we have to challenge these assumptions and we have to have conversations. Again, what do we want our learners to know and do? And are these practices serving us? And if they're not, we have to get rid of them. But we just don't talk about it enough. We keep adding more and more and not ever leaving things aside. And I think your spelling tests, please stop doing the pretest on one day. And the post test on the end of the week—that's like you know an hour or two a week of time that you have to do something else.
0: And I'd throw in a pop quiz halfway through, you know. <laughs> <Pop quiz.
2: Okay.
0: laughs> Why not? Why not?
2: You know, my favorite is when you get the the, the pre test on the on Monday. That's a hundred percent, and by the end of the week, the grade's gone down, and that's the final grade. No. But um, <laughs> so I think it's it's looking at when people say to me. I don't have enough time. Then we can start looking at what can you get rid of? What could you do instead? Instead of a half hour lesson on cursive and then a half hour lesson on spelling and then complaining because the kids aren't writing anything authentically, let's merge those and you have an hour for authentic reading and writing that you could practice your spelling and printing.
0: That's an awesome idea. That's fantastic. <laughs> your, your point there about, challenging and the assumption of I'm supposed to do this. I've seen so clearly in in the schools I support that I gave a teacher Mark Barnes's book, Role Reversal, where he advocates throwing out grades. And the teacher said, I can't do this because my principal wants me to do grades. And I just had a conversation with that principal who's like, oh, I wish my teachers would just go to feedback instead of grades and throw them out. So you're totally right. Question, is this working? Is this what my kids need? And where's this pressure coming from?
2: Yeah. And I think you're, I, I see that all the time also, Ben, is that my teacher wants me to do that or my principal wants me to do that. And I, I want to challenge principals, especially in this, to really talk to teachers and tell their story. I just um, had an instance recently where a principal was really frustrated because he just said, I just want my teachers to have flexible classrooms. I want to see kids collaborating, and I just want to see some authentic learning happening. I'm sick of the rose. And he, then you he start talking about his experience as a teacher and what he did and how he struggled through it. And we asked him, have you talked to your teachers like that? And he said, no, why, could I? And we're like, yes, that's exactly what you need to do. You need to talk to your teachers and tell them what you want and be human. And share your passion. But instead, we get back into these roles and it's like compliance and there's no human element to it and no relationship. And so people don't really understand and aren't moved or inspired to do it. They're just going through the motions. And we can change that by just starting to have conversations. I really believe that. Wow.
0: For sure. Well, and I think it it goes back to the school culture of, of developing a school culture of learning and of innovation. And I'm curious, how would you advise a leadership team and principal or and teachers to really change the culture of a building?
2: I think starting conversations about what they want to be happening in classrooms. So going back to what do we want to see in classrooms? What do we believe about good teaching and learning? What are our values? How do we learn? Those conversations can really help people create those anchors. And then you start to see if this is what we want and what we believe about good teaching and learning and leadership, then where's the disconnect? And then when you start to see that that tension between what you want and where you are, you can start making those changes. And then really the principle Starting first, I think the principal can by modeling, how are they learning? How are they taking risks? It's really easy to tell other people to take risks and really easy to tell people that, you know, not to worry about tests or other things. But until you are in that position, if you if you want to lead, you have to be the one to model that and to really start showing that. So it starts with the building principle. It starts with district leaders modeling. Teachers start modeling for their kids that they can make mistakes and that they're always learning and that those lessons and those models go a long way.
1: That's great. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, I have a big question for you, Katie. Are you ready? Yeah. (laughs) I've been wrestling with it. Lately, And I just, I, I want to know what other people's thoughts are. So in your minds, what, what do you think the purpose of public education is or should be?
2: Wow, that is a big one. It's,
1: it's huge. I know. I'm sorry.
2: I, well, you know, I just asked a group of people that the other day and they were like, whoa, Katie, that's a big question. So <laughs> now I'm getting it back. The purpose of public education, I really believe what I want it to be is, and especially where I see my own kids I want it to be a place where they can really start to hone their strengths. I want it to be a place where they can start to learn in a safe place what the world is like, start to have different experiences that help them understand what they do like and what they don't like, start to understand where they fit in this world, but have opportunities to try some things out in a safe safe space. I also believe it's a place where they need to learn some skills and they need to be able to have some foundational skills that they're learning and applying them in a way that um, that is empowering and helping them connect to other people. And ultimately, it's to prepare and develop the type of citizens and workers and people who will continue to lead the country and move us forward.
1: That's a really good answer. <laughs> I tried taking notes while you did it. I'll send it to you later if you forgot yeah. what you said. I do that all the time. <laughs> I say really great things and then they're out of my mind. No, I think that's a really good answer. And I, I have kids too, um, little ones, a four and a two-year-old. And I mean, that's, that's what I want for them. I want them to have a place where they can, you're right, learn about the world and where they fit in it and what their strengths and interests are, but then try out new things in a safe environment. That's, that's, that's what it's all about.
0: Yeah. And, and like in your TED Talk, I, I also have kids and I have your same exact sentiment and hope that my kid doesn't get more and more disengaged with school as it goes on. And I think one of my favorite lines in your TED talk was, I hope they're just as in love with learning when they graduate high school as they were on the day I sent them to kindergarten. So that's a great line. Ditto.
1: I almost started crying. Because oh, I don't I'm, know if that'll be true. I mean, I'm I saw the graph. Like, I don't know if that'll be true.
2: I, it, is, it is increasingly not true for me. And it's really hard to see. I struggle constantly when I see my kids not wanting to go to school. And, and I, I say that, and I'm honest about it, but I also know their teachers love them and care about them. And my kids are in a great school, a hundred percent, but the system itself is not designed for what we just said we wanted as parents. The system is not designed for my kids to learn about who they are as individuals and to really grow and develop those competencies and experiences.
0: I got it. I mean, so what do we do about that?
2: So I I, I don't want to be doom and gloom. One of my um, previous colleagues and just a really good friend of mine who I was talking to him the other day, and we he is in a school district in the Cajon Valley School District. So David Mia shares is the superintendent. Ed Hidalgo is the chief innovation officer or something like that. But what they're doing, I am just so inspired by they're really creating world of work experiences for K-8 kids. So our young kids, they're creating opportunities for them to learn about the world of work as early as kindergarten and not to put them in these career paths and, and put them in academies, but to provide experiences and for help helping them understand what people do in the real world and why they do it and and understanding who they are as individuals and whether or not their interests align with different careers and different pathways. And it is so inspiring to see how they're connecting kids um, with themselves and the world and how they're helping teachers to understand that. What you know, district I'm, is that, did you say? Um, Cajon Valley Union School District. It's huh. here in San Diego. It's amazing. I'll send you some of the resources, too. They've just really done... tremendous they're they're pushing boundaries in ways that a lot of people um, are not willing to but I think that they're going to start being a model for a lot of people to see what's possible
1: oh that's awesome thank you I'm I'm, we're always looking for you know who to steal things from so
2: yes they're great
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's called collaborate with Becky yeah totally totally (laughs) also San Diego I think is how you say it yes you know Yeah, (laughs) Uh, definitely. Oh, we're getting a little punchy. Yes. Um, Okay, so, Katie, one last thing that we want to do. I want to be sensitive to your time. You're being so generous with us. But for each of our guests, we have a series of rapid fire questions that we've kind of tuned over these past couple interviews. Would you mind if we just ask you some rapid fires to finish Uh, this off?
2: I don't think I have a choice, do I? I?
1: No, you totally don't. (laughs) So, the first one is if you could have a billboard anywhere in the world with anything written at it, metaphorically speaking, and kind of get your message out to millions and millions of people, what would be on your billboard and why? It could be words, it could be images, whatever you want.
2: I love the sign, um, believe there is good, highlighted, be the good. And I love that dual message because I, I want to believe there is good in this world. And I also feel like we have to be the ones to model it and we can't expect others to do it.
1: That's awesome.
0: Oh, wow. Really? That was super good for on the spot. Well, it's yeah. just good in general, but that's very impressed. Fantastic. Next rapid fire question. In the past five years, what new belief behavior or habit has most improved your life? It could be in any area, personally, professionally.
2: I would have to say the um, blogging and my um, transparency in my own learning has really shifted my thinking and my practice a ton.
1: It's so That's good to hear. I don't know how many times I had to be pushed in that direction. I still don't have a blog yet and I really need to get on it. You so need to and, get on that. I know.
0: Well, and I think after talking to like Clive Thompson, just about the idea of the audience effect, that you actually have better ideas when you put them out there for other people and Absolutely. all their network and feedback with it. So just thinking through an idea makes it better. And that alone makes me want to start blogging.
1: Totally. All right. Last one, Katie. What is bad advice you often hear in your profession?
2: This is old, but I still think it's just really bad advice. This like, don't smile until December or like any notion about you have to be the show that you're in charge as the teacher and show that you have control. I think that's really bad advice. I think that the more we can connect with, I mean, you obviously need to have control, but like of the classroom, but you don't have to be the one, you don't have to be so separate from kids and really being able to connect with them and build those relationships, I think is um, really important.
1: That's awesome. That's love, awesome. Love, love, that. Katie, thank you so, so much. Um, we'll let you run on this before we let you go. Where can our listeners go to learn with and from you?
2: Well, you've mentioned the book, so I appreciate that. The book is out and they can access Learner Centered Innovation on Amazon. And then my website is Katie L martin.com and that also has the ted talk that you referenced um blogs and links to
1: anything else that's current and relevant
0: all right becky let's close up shop what'd you learn
1: I learned about the importance of communication and clear vision. I was really struck by her story about uh, hearing the same thing out of principals' mouths as she hears from teachers' mouths and and how they have kind of that disconnect between what they're looking for. And if we're not having honest, candid conversations with each other about our own capacities or what we think learning should look like, we'll never be able to realize that ideal for our students.
0: Yeah, I, I liked that part a lot. I also really enjoyed the 25-hour learning challenge that she spoke of. Uh, I love the idea of modeling that we are all learners first and foremost, and I just know that can be super powerful for teachers to see their principals do that and for students to see their teachers do that. And I think you and I have been learning a lot about podcasting, and I hope um, we could be more transparent in what we've learned through this process as well.
1: Absolutely. And we really want to learn from you. So please, please tell us how we can make brainwaves a better experience for you. Do you want longer interviews, shorter interviews, more tangible tips? Let us know at tinyurl.com backslash And there's a link to that on the blog as well. And check our blog and Twitter feed for show notes and other extensions where you can find more from our guests.
0: Yes, and help brainwaves inform, inspire and connect even more educators by subscribing and sharing especially on Apple Podcasts.
1: So with that, go find your marigolds and be a marigold. I know I've been guilty of being a walnut tree sometimes too, so let's all go be marigolds. Thanks for listening.